Welcome to this podcast from the Religion Media Center, the only podcast to sit firmly in the space where religion and the media collide. We aim to ease that relationship, strengthen links that already exist, and help build new ones through chat, reflection, and comment. Thanks for listening. Welcome to today's Religion Media Centre briefing, which is about the organisation INFORM, the information network focus on religious movements, which is celebrating its 35th anniversary. In brief, it provides information about minority religions, sects and new religious movements. So joining us for the discussion today, we have INFORM's founder, Professor Eileen Barker, its honorary director, Dr Suzanne Newcomb, and Senior Research Officer, Dr. Sarah Harvey. So thank you all very much for joining us today. I'm going to start, if I may, with you, Eileen, as the founder of INFORM, and take us back to the origins of the organisation and how it all began. Was it your idea or did someone volunteer you for the job? How did it all start? It's something that sort of growed. Um, I had been working on um, studying new religions for some time. And this was at the time that was called the Cult Wars, um, when social scientists were being accused of being cult apologists because we were finding things that went against the conventional wisdom at the time. Um, there were what were called the anti-cultists, were initially concerned parents, but then it became far more professional and included deprogrammers who were people who would tell worried parents that um, their child, adult child, had been brainwashed and had been taken over and was being controlled by this cult and that they would be unable to leave because they were brainwashed. So the parents were expected to pay some, sometimes tens of thousands of pounds to get them kidnapped and held against their will until either they managed to escape or convince their captors that they had renounced their faith. And there were also some reports being gathered in um, countries about the dangers of the cults, France in particular, but also Belgium and other places. And there was the general picture in the media, not all of the media, but most of the media, that these were frightening things. In fact, I, I met the other day a journalist from um, a, a very well-known journalist, and he told me that when he was young, he was told if he was naughty, that the Moonies would get him. And it it was like when I was a child, we heard about um, Bonaparte getting you. Um, but they they were something, cults were just sort of the, the reds under the bed, or they were satanic, they brainwashed, they abused children, um, they were about to commit mass suicide, et cetera, et cetera. And those of us who were studying the movements were not really finding this. They weren't perfect, but um, neither is the Catholic Church or even the Church of England perfect. And um, there were problems, but they, all of the cults were not performing all of the wicked things. 
Another thing that was helpful was that the government kept being asked, what are you going to do about the cults? And the mainstream churches were being asked, what are you going to do about the cults? So there was a sort of environment which was ready to have something like inform. The actual moment when it happened was that I was at an anti-cult meeting and I was taking notes while four former members were talking about their experiences in their respective movements. There was somebody from the Rajneeshis, I think somebody from the Hare Krishna, and somebody from the Unification Church, and I can't remember what the other one was. But they were saying things like, well, you know, it was all right, we, we enjoyed it at first, but then we discovered it wasn't really giving us what they want. And they were being told you were brainwashed. And they said, no, no, we weren't brainwashed. We, we, we wanted to join, and we, we enjoyed it for a bit. But there was this problem and there was that problem. And the audience kept insisting, no, you were brainwashed. And the person who had organized it said, now let's calm down. And can you tell us something that could be useful for these parents? And at that point, a woman stood up and said, we don't want to hear this. We don't want to hear this. And that was my sort of road to Damascus, as it were. And I stopped taking notes and I thought, this is the problem. They don't want to hear it. They, they just shut off everything. And I thought, something's got to be done. And I got help from the government and the mainstream churches, who I think were relieved to hand over the problem to somebody else. And the idea was that we would be like one of those signposts in the in the zoo, which has various pointing arrows, somebody would phone up and say, well, we want to know about Scientologists. And we'd say, we'll go to Professor X in um, Pennsylvania or something who, who has studied them. And um, we would pass on the information because by then the, there was a sort of international network of us who had been studying the movements. And it took about a couple of years to set up. And then we opened on the 1st of January, 1988, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who I knew fairly well, that was um, Robert Runcy at the time, he opened it, and um, that was it. We were off. Can you just tell me something about your approach to religion? Because um, at the time, uh, the Moonies, the Children of God, these were the organisations that were accused of uh, taking teenagers away from their families and everything they knew. Did you have any sense that there should be a value judgment on this? Or were you always prepared to see it and observe it as something that was happening without making a judgment about what was going on? As a sociologist of religion, I'm methodologically agnostic. That is, if somebody says, God appeared to me and told me such and such had happened, I'm not going to use God as what we call an independent variable. I'm not going to say she joined because God um, told me. Um, I'll say she believes that God told her. Um, similarly, if somebody says it was Satan who did it, I'm not going to say it was Satan or it wasn't Satan. So when I'm describing things, the supernatural, anything that can't be tested in a, quote, scientific way, 
um, can't come into the equation. However, that doesn't mean to say that you don't study something because you think it's important, because you're, um, what, what you're doing could have value. So at the time, I was thinking, well, if these people are brainwashed, then something ought to be done about it, and they should be looked after by professionals, not, not by um, these self-appointed deprogrammers, who some of them, not, not most of them, but some of them included rape and using gunpoint um, taking people. On the other hand, if they weren't being brainwashed, then I thought that they had the right to manifest their religion in any way that they wanted, as long as it didn't go against the law to which all citizens should be subject. So values come into it in that you think it's important to study it, but you try not to let them color what you are studying. And at the other end, how your research is used. Now, you don't have control over this, and my research has been misused in a whole lot of ways or twisted. Uh, the people who discovered napalm didn't expect it to be used in the way that it was. However, I do think that if you can use your research for good, then you should. So setting up in form was again a value that I thought objective, fair information that was methodologically agnostic um, should be made available to the public. So values before and values after, but while you're doing the research, no. <laughs> I remember one story that you uh, gave at um, an event where you spoke about the abuse that you'd received at public meetings where you try to put forward this view that um, cults should be just seen for what they are rather than uh, um, agents of... Uh, uh, misuse, if you like, of of uh, that they were abusing young people and so forth. And you, you, you said in this meeting that you were spat at on one occasion and name called and so forth. Just tell us something about the abuse you received in those early days. It wasn't a fair person that spat at me. That that happened in America, at another anti cult um, organisation. Oh, the media attacked me. They were being told stories about me that I was being paid by the Moonies, that I was being paid by the Scientologists. I was a Mooney. It was really very unpleasant. Um, in some ways, though, it was good as far as Inform was concerned. People used to phone up Inform, and uh, we never knew whether they were a member of, of a, one of the movements trying to find out what we'd say about them or whether they were an anti-cultist trying to trip us up by saying how good they were or something. We had to be very careful that what we said could be um, backed up, who, whoever was saying it and asking us. Um, there, there was a petition presented to uh, Margaret Thatcher, um, signed by I don't know how many people, saying that Inform ought not to be getting government money and it should be taken away. And... Um, Mrs. Thatcher, evidently, I only learned this from somebody in the Home Office much later, um, asked that Inform should be investigated. And um, presumably, there were some people who were investigating us, unknown to us. And um, 
evidently they reported back that we were doing a good job and that the anti-cultists were nuts. So we had our funding renewed. So that was quite helpful. You were at the time at the London School of Economics, and that's where Inform was based uh, at the time. But is it correct to say that it's always been a global movement that you've liaised with academics all over the world? Just give us an idea of how extensive the research into uh, new religious movements is all over the world and how that may have developed in the last 35 years. It's always been quite strong in North America, USA and Canada. Europe is a bit patchy. It's not a terribly good career move anywhere, including America and here in those days, to be studying a new religious movement. I I know one person who did a very good study of ISKCON, the Hare Krishna movement, and for his PhD. And he was told that unless he made it quite clear that they were a bad thing, he wouldn't get his PhD. Um, various people started off and were advised that if they wanted a career in academia, they, they shouldn't study new religions. There had been some in Germany, some studies, but um, they were rather stamped out. France, very, very difficult to study new religions, still is, though there are some brave souls who do. Most countries have people who study. They may not be sociologists or social scientists. I mean, in Estonia, for example, one of the people who knows most about the um, new religions actually is a civil servant who works for the government. Also, he, he got a PhD in studying um, religions. So there's a variety of people. who We, we don't just turn to academics, um, though... Most of Europe now has at least one person who is studying. Israel's got quite a few. Um, Iran has got one or two, but they have to be fairly careful. You you have international conferences, uh, I know, um, and uh, you had one recently to celebrate your 35th uh, anniversary. As you uh, looked around and you saw the people who were attending that conference, some of whom have been with your organisation or associated for, for many years, how do you look back on the last 35 years and its achievements? I'm quite proud of INFORM. Very happy it's carrying on now. Lots of people, when they find found things, when, when they leave, they get very upset. I'm not, because I've got some very good people who have taken over. I think we achieved quite a bit, not perhaps as much as we wanted, but I think there was a middle people, the people who weren't ardently always for, or the people who were ardently against, there was a middle people who didn't know and were prepared to listen. And I think we got the ears of a lot of those. I remember the police once saying to me, a policeman who we worked with quite a lot, that when he went before Inform came to um, one of the or other of the anti-cult movements, they would say, and ask them about a particular movement, they say, oh, were well, they brainwashed, they don't know, da, 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 da. Whereas you come to Inform and they say, well, this movement does this, but it doesn't do that. And they, they, they used us quite a lot and found us useful. And the government still does. Thank you. That leads us on to uh, 
the, the questions to the people who've taken over from you, as you as you mentioned. Uh, can I go to Sarah, Sarah Harvey, Dr. Sarah Harvey? In your work at the moment, Eileen's been saying that she's had a uh, liaison with the police and the government. Who are the people who use the work of Inform? Which groups or individuals? Yeah, it's a whole range of people. Um, as since the very founding of Inform 35 years ago, anyone can make an inquiry to inform through our phone line or our email service um, and we have a whole range of people contact us every year. Um, I think probably the highest inquirer type of inquirer is the media um, followed closely by academics and students and they're the kind of people who are wanting just um, accurate evidence-based information about minorities. So police for example and yes. other public services like yes. the health service? Yep so we have all of those as well um, we have government inquiries, um, met police, local police inquiries, and they're usually about a specific movement um, because there is an issue they want to explore more. And we still get the inquiries from family and friends of people who have joined a new religious movement, minority religion, um, and they're seeking information uh, perhaps because they don't know anything about it. They might be seeking more practical support. Um, and then we have a, a kind of a signposting service where we can put them um, in touch with the relevant people that they want. Uh, we also have current members contact us and we also have a lot of former members contact. Um, and there we have kind of clusters around particular movements where we work quite a lot with ex-members. Um, and, and again, they're often seeking. Tell us a bit more about how the research is done. Who are the researchers and how long does it take, for example, to write something about a religious movement that just comes to your attention? Is it a long process? It really depends on the inquiry that we've received. So some inquiries can be really quick and simple to answer. Um, you know, if it's really simple information, like when was this movement founded, who are the current leaders, something like that. Um, we rely on a lot on our network of experts because there's only a few of us who work in the office. Um, Suzanne does a lot as honorary director, but it's um, me and Ruby Forrester work in the office. Um, and then we have other researchers who come in to work on specific projects. So we're a very small staff, so we can't um, look at lots of different religious movements in depth at any one time. So we rely a lot on our network of experts. We know which academics are researching which movement, so we can go to those quickly for information or put the inquirers directly in. Um, if I am researching a group from scratch, um, it would take a few weeks, I think, to start with kind of desk-based research. And then the ideal would always be to make contact with the movement, to um, do field research, primary research. Um, that's not always possible. It, it depends on kind of the scope of the inquiry and, and how long we have. Can I bring you in? Um... Suzanne, Dr. Suzanne Newcomb, Honorary Director of Inform. Just picking up that thread with you, uh, what are the kind of movements that you're investigating now? Is there a kind of new rel religious movement every year or is it more frequent than that? What, 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 uh, what yes, just give us a flavour of the movements that you're looking at at the moment. Well, I wouldn't say investigating um, because we, we try to answer inquiries to the best of our ability, but we don't really have the facility or the ability to, to as some investigative journalists do, they might have much bigger budgets than we do. Um, and but, but we do try to do as 
um, best a job at researching we can and provide as up-to-date and as comprehensive information as possible in answer to a specific question. But in terms of what kind of things we're asked about, um, it really goes in ebbs and flows. So um, there's been a lot of interest in movements that originated in social media, for example. Um, it, during the pandemic, there was a lot of interest in conspirituality um, and the overlaps between religious um, alternative approaches to health and different kinds of pushbacks against government messaging around the pandemic. Also um, of interest is kind of the way new people, new, new, younger people are in, in, engaging with social media and finding their own religious identities um, in those spaces. We also have lots of um, a kind of groups that are under the radar um, we get asked about that you can't find information on Google easily. So if there's a kind of religious symbol um, that's associated with, with um, a fear of what, of maybe um, social unrest or a crime, like what does this mean? Is it associated with any known groups is a kind of question we'd get. Um, it can be really all sorts of things. And we still get inquiries about the groups like um, that were, were part of the first generation of new religious movements. So the, the Moonies and all their splinter groups, um, what are they doing across the world? What are the second generations doing? How are they coping with having grown up in these groups? Um, all sorts, really. What about QAnon? Going back to what you were just saying there about a sect that emerged during the pandemic. Um, what about QAnon and the conspiracy theories in uh, the States? Has that... Uh, it, introduce more people to the study of uh, religion or more people into your network? Has it, has it heightened interest in the kind of work that you're doing? We've had a great um, interest in internships with undergraduate students at King's, and a lot of them are really interested in the religions found on the internet now. So I think there's definitely a renewed interest in this grey area of overlaps between religious ideology and social movements, things that aren't quite religious, that have some um, tendencies that might be viewed by some as irrational or socially deviant. Um, and I think that in terms of sociology of religion in general, or the study of religion at the university level in general, there's a huge interest in these kind of fuzzy areas of it's a little bit religious, it's a little bit not, it's a little bit controlling, it's a little bit not, what's, what's going on here? When you say that the people like the police and the government uh, come to you, approach you and ask for your research and you, you give it to them, do they adopt the same attitude that you have as in your work towards a, a new religious movement that it's there to be observed? Or do they ask you probing questions about uh, possible criminality uh, involved in either membership or the way that the uh, sect is run? Well, in many ways, the government's no different than any other inquirer in that they have a specific question or a specific problem they're trying to deal with. And um, different areas of the government have different questions. So say we, we might get a question from the Department of Education about a specific um, way a, a person wants to present their religious identity in school and to what extent is this actually representative of the wider tradition. Um, or we might get a, a question about um, implications of public protests and different religious groups interacting in that. And in any case, um, just for the government, just as in any other inquirer, it's not our job to um, answer what they should do 
about the question, but provide them as best information as possible for them to make the decision about how they want to deal with that group or individual in that particular incident. Can I ask you and, and Sarah perhaps on Islamist splinter groups and uh, Hindu uh, groups that uh, perhaps in the second wave of uh, migrants coming to the UK, do you investigate anything around that Islamism and Hindutva groups in the UK? I would hesitate to say investigate, but we are asked questions about um, the variety of different new groups within the mainstream traditions. And over the last maybe say 15 years, these have really have become an increasing part of our work. So the line between traditional movements and what were called new religions and cults has really become much blurrier, as well as the social awareness of harm caused in both groups. So there's much greater awareness of um, more harmful behaviours and tendencies in the Catholic Church and the Church of England than there were 20 or 35 years ago when Eileen started. Eileen was speaking earlier about the centres around the world where there are uh, sociologists of religion working. Um, are there any, for example, that you would liaise with in India or the Middle East when you were looking at uh, groups within Islam and, uh, and the Hindu tradition? I don't think there's research centres, but there certainly are individual researchers within our network in those areas. Um, and so we try to um, draw on the network of scholars to try to find the, the best place experts. Um, I think in, in Japan and Korea, there's a bit more established study of new religions. They've been having new, new, new religions for quite some time now. So there's more academic structures there. Um, but we, we always try to reach out and um, update our own information because often there's new scholars who are up and coming who might have the latest information based on their recent PhD research. So it's really about um, always having more curiosity and awareness that there's more information out there. You mentioned Korea and uh, the, the church at the centre of the outbreak of the COVID um, virus was the Chinjoni, if that's how you pronounce it, Chinjoni Church. Um, was there a, a lot of interest in in um, your inquiry into that church or into research that you may have done at that time? Can you tell us something about that episode? I've spent some time in Korea and Taiwan and Japan and China, mainland China recently. And I've been and visited the Chinyun um Church. And um, there are quite a lot of uh, groups that are very interested in being studied by scholars um, in, in the Far East. And um, the Xinjiangji Church, that, that was actually very unfair um, in, in a lot of ways because it was just unfortunate that it was one of their members who happened to be the well-identified person who brought COVID into um, South Korea. Um, and when they meet, there, there are a whole lot of them, and so it spread. Tell us what's going on in, in China, Eileen. You said you've been to China. What kind of splinter groups and sectarian groups, new religious movements, have you discovered there? Are they on the rise? They are, but they're underground, and life for the Chinese um, religionists in general has become far more difficult since President Xi came along, and each year it gets more difficult. For 10 years, I went for two weeks every year to actually give lectures on religion 
at the police university in Beijing. So I got to know quite a few. They, they, they would take me around. This was the condition on which I, I gave these. I spent this time with them. They would take me to re-educated cultists and places where they were re-educating. I mean, obviously, I went more to the show places, but I interviewed the anti-cultists within the government and outside the government. And there's a lot of fear, not about the particular beliefs, but about the ability to organize alternative ideologies in um, China. And so there's what there's a list of what they call the Cijiao, X I E J I A O, I think. And um, if you're on that list, you're criminal anyway. Um, and so you're you're not a a new religious movement. I got ticked off for calling Falun Gong a new religious movement because it's a Cijiao. Therefore, it's criminal. Therefore, it's not a religion. Therefore, it isn't subject to freedom of religion, which of course they have. And how is your research used in China? Are you allowed back in after you've written your reports? Well, I don't write reports. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm very welcome there now. I, I go to Taiwan, um, which is, of course, different. And religion, new religions are flourishing there, masses of them. Are they? Tell us something mm. about that. What kind of movements? Oh, great variety. Um, the, the, the usual suspects are all there. You've seen posters for Falun Gong, or you did until recently. Buddhist, Taoist, um, Feng Shui, um, various indigenous, various Confucian. It's, it's very syncretistic, but there's lots, and it's um, very open um, compared to other places. Well, Korea also has, South Korea has got uh, burgeoning new religions. You can divide those into two mainly, the sort of Christian derivatives, uh, like the Unification Church and indigenous ones, new ones that have come up since the turn of the last century. Interesting. Can I turn the similar question to both uh, Susanna and Sarah? Can you just give us some stories? Tell us about some of the most recent new religious movements that you've become aware of or writing about. I mean, in the 80s, the Moonies, everything was very visible. People used to wear robes in certain groups. They they bought stately homes that they lived in, in communes. They were visible. And now, as you say, in the age of social media, perhaps all that has changed. But what does a new religious movement look like in 2024? I think that in many ways um, they can look the same. They might be new or they might be um, reversions of um, of things that have gone before. So, um, like, there's been a, a, a lot of Netflix and, say, Vice documentaries of, say, Nixium or Twin Flames, um, and those have been really interesting um, kind of exposés. One of the things that our research uncovers in our database, which has over 5,000 different groups and over 35 years of history, um, shows about how 
the new synchronistic groups are drawing upon um, ideas and concepts that have a much longer history. And so one of the things we're often able to do is, is pick up where different ideas have appeared at different points of time or where different behaviors have appeared in different groups and, and what's happened in the past and what might be likely to happen given certain situations. It's not quite answering your question either, but say... Um, with Bob Marley's new bioptic film, um, there's, there's questions about Rastafarianism, and that's still a, um, a kind of a new gr group, and it's kind of an old religious movement. Um, there's about 6,000 um, Rastas in Britain who identified on the census, which is quite interesting. Um, but what's also interesting is that it used to be a very patriarchal movement where women were excluded from leadership, and that's been changing over the last maybe 10 or 15 years. So one of the important things that Inform tries to do is to keep on top of these changes because a group doesn't always have the same beliefs and behaviors all the time. And if you rely on kind of outdated stereotypes or just received wisdom, you might miss out on some of these changes or the way a group behaves differently in one country than another country. One question I, I have is is whether the uh, the context, the cultural context or the uh, the, the social context of particular cost of living crisis or, um, well, that the pandemic is, is an extreme, but changes in population, uh, fast movements of, of people between countries, whether anything external drives spikes in the creation of new religious movements. What can you identify about that and perhaps relevant to looking at this this year and last year, perhaps? Can I just pop in and say one thing that hasn't been mentioned is the World Wide Web. I mean, it's incredible to think that I wrote a book about new religions in 89 and there wasn't one mention of the web or the internet. Um, th there are a whole lot of movements that exist pretty well only on the web now, or there might be small little um, coteries which exist. But the web has made an enormous difference in hosting new religions, but also in communication. I'll shut up now, but I think that this is a, a big change that has occurred within the last, well, certainly within Inform's lifetime. I think something we do get um, more questions on now than we did when I started was not not only, so we get less questions about like, what do Scientologists believe? Or I'm afraid my um, child has joined a cult. Can you tell me what this group is? Because those are now answered on Wikipedia. But what we do get a lot more complex questions about the 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 way that people put these different movements and ideas together in quite idiosyncratic ways. And in a way, this isn't anything new. This is something um, Robert Bellal talked about ages ago in, in Sheilaism, but it's happening on the World Wide Web, in social media, in Parler, in Discord, um, in, in different ways so that the online ideological um, milieu and the potential for what you might say um, self-radicalization of, of terrorists, for example, is, is a really interesting intersection that we do get questions about. So, so when people do pick up um, ideologies about new world orders, about apocalyptic thinking, the, the, the kind of great replacement theory, um, all of these have very much religious elements that people are, are picking up in the communication on online, various social media, the World Wide Web, and putting together novel ways so, so we can be helpful in 
identifying trends between the different individuals that do these kind of things, as well as the historical continuity, because this is, on the other hand, nothing new. Has social media accelerated the number of new religious movements that are beginning? I think probably because there's so much more access to um, different uh, traditions, different sources of knowledge, different practices. So you're able to be much more creative in um, in assembling and, and leaders of groups do this as well as individuals. Um, and I think particularly with colleagues who are working more in Southeast Asia, um, you, you definitely see these kind of synchronistic, because um, they have a, a tendency to, um, to, to mix traditions more than Protestant tradition countries think is normal anyway. Um, so it's really fascinating. Um, and, and there's a lot of growth in areas that are overlapping with health and healing. And that was even before the pandemic or self-improvement. Um, again, these kind of gray areas of like, is it religious or is it just a, um, a kind of a, 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 a counseling and wellness group? Does it, do they fit into the religion category? Religion as a category or cults as a category is a very tricky thing. And we try not to define it so much as say that um, they can be usefully analysed using the tools of the sociology of religion um, and whether or not it fits into your definition of religion will depend. So some a lot of countries have definitions of official religion or unofficial religions and, and Britain has a much more complicated way of providing um, official recognition in different contexts. Um, but I think that all these phenomena in the grey areas are really helpfully understood with reference to the tools of sociology of religion, the history of religious studies, because people's beliefs and um, practices are not going away. They're just changing context. And it, even if it appears that people aren't identifying with institutional religion, they're still doing similar things. And we need to keep up a rigorous ability to analyze these critically and study them in depth. So your research now is much broader, in fact, if it's taking in spirituality and these grey areas that you've been describing. I mean, it's a huge explosion in this, uh, particularly in the States. What you're saying is uh, your definition is broad enough to enable your own organisation to grow and meet, meet what's happening in society. In many ways, it's always been that broad. That was always that was part of Eileen's framework. So she was really ahead of the curve in that. But I think it's only grown both in popularity, these grey areas, as well as in the academic recognition that these are a really important area to study. Thank you. I, can I go to Sarah uh, with this question? Because we at the Religion Media Centre, we do use you and your research a lot. Very helpful. And uh, what we have found is your research into tra traditional religious movements. I mean, you, you have documents and booklets on the, the major faith traditions in, in the world. Can you tell me something about your work there? Do you, do your, are your documents kind of fairly static or uh, do you find that the major traditions of the world are also moving and shifting and you have to keep updating what you're writing about them? Yes, well, we should be updating them a lot more than we are because we don't have the time and resources to do it. But um, one of the characteristics of new religious movements is they change more rapidly than old religious movements. But of course, old religious movements do change as well. Um, and so we should look at those documents and briefings that we're providing again and make sure they're up to date. Um, the move to create those booklets actually came out of um, the kind of inquiries that we were receiving. So I think Suzanne already talked about how um, 
about 10, 15 years ago, the interest wasn't so much in new religious movements, but in um, emerging traditions within the established faith. So post 9-11, people were interested in Islamic groups, but also with kind of Hindu political groups and with sects within Christianity. Um, Because of the kind of expertise that we have at Inform, we have much more knowledge and resources about particular traditions rather than some of the others. So, for instance, we don't have a great deal on Jewish um, groups, for instance. Um, but the, the the different traditions within the kind of world faiths is something that we map and are continually interested in and we continually get asked questions about as well. Your office is now not at the London School of Economics, but at King's mm-hmm. uh, College in, in London. What's your relationship with the department there? How do you how do you relate to all the other academics around you? Oh, well, we're well integrated into the department, I think, more so than when we were at LSC post Eiling's retirement, um, because after she retired, there was no one studying religion at LSC. Um, so we've been with King since 2018, and that was facilitated by Maratcha Terin, who was head of department and um, PhD research with Eileen. Um, we're well integrated there. We have colleagues that we work with. So um, Linda Woodhead is now head of department, and we're working with her on various projects. I'm working with her on the Abusive Religious Context project. Um, as Suzanne mentioned, I think we have a lot of um undergrad and master's students who intern at the office with us. We offer them a student placement. They can do some volunteer work with us. Um, We recently put out a call for new interns and we had 10 apply. So that was really good. Um, We also help students with their essays, with their research. Uh, They can visit our archives. Um, And we've also done a project with colleagues across Kent, um, sorry, Kings, which was a Kings Together project on spirit mediums. And that was with the Institute of Psychiatry. Um, so that was really good to be involved in that project. Important to, to emphasise that we're an independent charity and we're not directly um, integrated into Kings structurally. So we have a separate trustee, separate um, finance structure. And that, that's really important. We just have a very close collaborative agreement with Kings. I was going to ask you, we, we've covered lots of stories about the uh, the fact that there are fewer students studying uh, religious education, um, uh, well, religious studies at university and theology, and uh, some departments are having to, to close because of that. How interested are young people in studying religion in the way that you study religion? Is it a growth area? I, just from my interaction with students at King's, Suzanne can say more about at the OU. Um, I think they're incredibly interested and they're incredibly interested in the field of cults and new religions and sects because it's um, so prevalent in popular media and all the Netflix documentaries and podcasts and everything that's available at the moment. Uh, So they're fascinated in that, in the kind of grey areas between religion and politics and different forms of knowledge and alternative health practices, all of those kinds of areas I think there's a, a huge interest in. There's a question in the chat box. Andrew, would you like to ask it? Yeah, I was, when we were talking about the web earlier, I was um, thinking, I I was wondering whether the sense of not being part of the mainstream, which is central to your perception that you're part of a cult and indeed to other people's part of a perception, has been hugely increased by social media because 
it seems to have generated all sorts of ideas about what is mainstream, what opinions one ought to have had that weren't there before. This is related to, say, the, the Instagram ideal of how, how a young girl ought to look. And as a, as a result, almost all forms of intellectual and emotional engagement come to seem cultish, come to seem cut off from the wider world. Is that fair? I think that there's been something, um, some linguistic shifting in the word cult over the past 35 years. Fair enough. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And and like with Hilary Montel's um, kind of podcast, I think it's a little bit cultish. Um, Some of the interest that young people have in in, in cults is kind of tongue-in-cheek and it's kind of cool or kind of edgy. Um, It's not necessarily a list of something to be, um, bands in a lot of people's minds. So it, it, there's a much more playful um, in exchange about to what extent is your relationship with your tutor cultish or things like that in a, in a much more lighthearted way, but still also much more sensitive to power dynamics, um, to the potential of harm, the potential for abuse than perhaps was there in a normal teacher-student relationship in the 80s or 90s when I was around. Um, so uh we're trying to address this in part with um, some new publications. Um, we have a new book series with Bloomsbury and our first one is, is going to be about cult rhetoric and um, exploring the different ways that the use of the word cult and how, how people are um, sensitive to both the kind of abuses that originally um, inspired the use of the term as well as the kind of wider popular associations, um, how, how that's changing. So I don't know if that quite answers your question or if anyone else wants to jump in. Thank you. There's another question in the in the chat box from Terry. Do you want to ask that, Terry? If you have someone contact you um, to ask, is such and such a group a harmful group to its members? Or um, do you have like a definition that you would use to say what would constitute harmful? How do you go around that conversation of is this harmful, is that not? what We don't say they are a harmful group. We will say they kill people, they abuse children, they um, take all your money, or they will, or what do you consider would be harmful? I mean, some people think it's harmful because that they've got heretical beliefs and will not go to heaven, but will go to hell. Um, like if we're asked, is it a cult or a religion? You say, well, what do you mean by cult? Um, we we don't say it is a good or it is a bad. That's mm. something that we get attacked for. Um, I remember one article about me had, and I don't think it was The Guardian, um, had a headline, no room for review, because I just refused to say, use terms like good or bad. And this is going back to Ruth's earlier question about um, values. Harmful can mean very different things to different people. And so we don't assume we know what is harmful. But obviously, you've got to use common sense here. And if they're killing people, you tell them they're killing people. Mm-hmm. You don't just say, oh, they're harmful. Eileen, can we uh, give you the last word o- on this as you reflect on 35 years of inform? Has anything really changed? The same uh, religious movements are evident now, similar to when you first began. What conclusions do you draw from that? 
in form can go on to the year dot or until the Armageddon arrives, perhaps even after. Actually, that would be quite a good study, what happens at Armageddon. Um, no, I think people will go on being curious. What's the purpose in life? Is the life after death? What am I doing here? What's the meaning? And this will be tied up with things like, how can I get on in this life? What um, techniques might I use fuses? you know, something like Scientology, where they don't say, I believe, they say it works. Um, There's going to be questions in people's mind, I hope, um, forever. There have been this environment sort of questions, the details, but not the ultimate questions. They'll, They'll stay. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. And congratulations, Eileen, for starting it and uh, continuing the the cause. Um, Thank you very much for joining and see you on the next briefing. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk, where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.